Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a cookbook author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning how to hack our glucose levels to have more energy and better balanced hormones, optimizing our dopamine to stop reaching for our phone so much, or simply learning how to love ourselves, like really in a sustainable, empowering, and not at all cheesy way. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good, scroll on back in the archives. Today's episode is a little bit of a hodgepodge, but in the best way. My guest today is Chris Hutchins, the host of the All The Hacks podcast. He's also the head of new product strategy at Wealthfront, an online platform to help you build wealth through investing. He and his work have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, and more. And previously, he was an investor at Google Ventures and the founder and CEO of Grove, which was acquired by Wealthfront, and a co-founder of Milk, which was acquired by Google. We're clearly going to be getting into money stuff today from a few different angles. We start off getting into the entrepreneurial stuff, which I think is fascinating both for anyone who might want to start a company someday, or just if you want to peek behind the curtain of the Silicon Valley startup scene. He shares the surprising way he started and sold his companies to Google and Wealthfront. Super actionable, pragmatic networking tips that will change your life. His best advice for anyone who wants to start a company and the best books for aspiring entrepreneurs. Then we get into all things investing, including a simple way to think about investing money, a must-download app for budgeting, if you need a financial advisor and the one rule for choosing a good one, the best way to get rich right now, what rich people know about investing that normal people don't, whether NFTs or cryptocurrency are worth investing in, and more. Finally, I wanted him to give us a primer for hacking travel points because he's incredible at it, and it's a world that I didn't really understand at all but wanted to, mostly because the idea of flying first class and staying in fancy hotels for free sounds very appealing. I wanted someone to be like, okay, if you have never done this points thing, but you want to start reaping real rewards, here's where to actually begin. Here's what you can actually expect to get. Here's what's not to do all of that type of stuff, and Chris definitely delivered. I was also on Chris's podcast. He interviewed me about all of my favorite healthy cooking and living hacks. I know you guys are always asking about my favorite takeaways from this podcast, which is a lot of what I shared with Chris. So search for all the hacks on your favorite podcast platform and give it a listen. And if you're new here, if you found me through all the hacks or anywhere else, I would love it if you would subscribe and join our little fam. We have so many good episodes coming up, including a deep dive into the future of gut health, an interview with a money expert who insists that we can all be millionaires with just a few tweaks, and a new edition of our popular Pros and Cons of Having Kids series. So subscribe so you do not miss any new episodes. We have one every single Wednesday. All right, without further ado, please welcome Chris Hutchins with all of his genius life hacks. Okay, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm really excited to talk about all the hacks and also to have you explain travel hacking to me because I do not get it and I'm really excited to like understand it. I would love to. And I'm so <laughs> happy to be here recording in person. In person. Oh my gosh. It honestly feels like such a breath of fresh air to start to do in-person interviews again. I would love to start off with what are some hacks that you've learned that you actually employ on like a day-to-day basis that have changed your life that you've done like today or yesterday, the day before? I'll think of a couple. So one we'll probably get a lot more into, which is using credit cards and maximizing points. So every time I buy something, I'm always trying to make sure I use the optimal card. And I've unfortunately already used my credit card uh, to spend some money today. Another one is last night, 
uh, we're recording this on the first of the month and I have a credit card that gives me Uber credit every month and I forgot to use it. So last night, we're like, it's the 31st. We have $25. What are Did we going to do? Did you go for an Uber Joyride? No. So we ordered <laughs> cookies with Uber Eats, oh. which were not healthy. And there is a hack that uh, I learned from, I think it was near AL, which we talked about distraction. And he was basically like, look, if you want something really badly, just give yourself permission to have it in five minutes. And so I looked at these leftover cookies that were sitting on the table this morning. I said, you know what? If I really want this cookie in five minutes, I'm going to eat it. And do you like literally set a timer? Or is I, it like, like how think, precise is it? It was not precise timer precise, but I was like, in five minutes, if I still want this cookie, I can eat it. Well, guess what? Five minutes later, I was on to something else. I mm. didn't eat the cookie and I felt a lot better for not doing it. So the idea is like our brain is like a small child and you can just like distract it with a shiny thing in a different direction. Exactly. Yeah. Like <laughs> I saw the cookie. I was like, oh, the cookie sounds really good right now. <laughs> five minutes later, I was back at work. I was not even paying attention to the cookie. So that's a hack I use all the time because mm. I have very little food self-control, but it works pretty well for me. Okay. What about psychological hacks? Like, are there mindset shifts that you've learned that have changed how you approach the world? Yeah. So I had on a couple, Nate and Kaylee Klemp. Okay. Uh, they're a married couple that did a bunch of research with couples to talk about relationships. So if you want to dig in deep, go find that episode if you're listening. But the, the gist of it is they wrote a book called The 80-80 Marriage. Okay. And the backstory of it is, if you look a long, long time ago, our parents' generation probably, uh, you know, like, usually there was one partner who was doing 80% of the work. Most often it was the woman. And the man was doing like 20% of the work. And by work, I mean things to make the family function, kids, everything like that. Okay. And what they found is that then we made this shift with our generation to a 50-50 marriage which mm. came with a handful of problems that we as a society haven't figured out how to address. Yeah. So a great example is I put the kids down last night. You put the kids down this night. When once you're 50-50, it's all about keeping score and it becomes this like right. total disaster. And nobody kind of like owns an area in the yeah. same way. And so they're like, one, take a new approach of what they call radical generosity, where it's like, look, we're all, as long as we all know that we're all going to try harder. And by the way, when you see one person carrying more weight, uh, oftentimes other people like want to pick up the slack in a relationship they care about. Mm. If you don't have a healthy relationship, that's maybe a that's whole separate an, problem. Another issue to uh, deal with. But so, you know, they call it the 80-80 marriage and it's like, we're not going to keep track of who is, who's done the dishwasher, mm. the dishes more often or who uh, cooked dinner which night. It's like, we all know that we're all going to try really hard in different places. Yeah. I'm the person who maybe is gathering everything right now for our tax returns. And like, if you kind of look at it all together and even one of their hacks, which we still haven't figured out the, the name, but is to name your family relationship. So it's like, what is frame a decision on what's best for the family? And they think it's even better if you have a name for it. Wait, so what like your explain that? Yeah, I'll give you an example. The one they gave uh, when we interviewed them. And by the way, that was the first interview I'd ever done with my wife. We both interviewed them. Oh, that's um, so fun. And it was they were trying to figure out who is going to take off work to meet their daughter at the bus when she gets off at 3.30 because someone needs to do that. And if you framed it as, well, what's best for the family? Then it was like, as a cohesive unit right now for whose career is taking time off harder, it was easier for them to be like, oh, Nate decided he was the one that was going to take off. But when it was just like, should I take off? an hour and a half early to go get our daughter. I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. So they started framing everything with what's best for 
the family. I so, like that in general because I do think that it's so easy to kind of fall into very individualistic thinking and that almost encourages a more community-based thinking even if your community is like your tiny nuclear family. Yeah, and I think their nickname for their family was something that was like the first three letters of their themselves and their daughter or something. It was it was very simple. You didn't have to have a fancy name. But you come up with any name. Do you guys have one yet? We don't no? have one okay. yet. We were thinking you, are about you workshopping it. stuff? Well, we, ha- we have a daughter coming in two months and we we're like, well, let's just wait till she's here. Now mm. we're going to, we don't know her name yet. Then we can come up with a cool name. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. We love talking about our gut health here on the Healthier Together podcast, which is why I'm so excited to share the life-changing Seed Daily Symbiotic. I actually discovered Seed back when I was working as an editor full-time. A bottle came across my desk and I was instantly taken by how cute the green glass packaging is. Then I found out that that packaging was actually refillable so that Seed could share its products as sustainably as possible. And then I actually looked into the research behind Seed and, well, I was blown away. First of all, Seed is not just a probiotic. It is a symbiotic. That means it contains both pre and probiotics, which is super important. In fact, if you remember my Ask the Doctor Gut Health Edition, we talked about how prebiotics are one of the most important and often underlooked components of great gut health. Let me break it down for you. Probiotics are the live bacteria that are so beneficial to our gut health, but prebiotics are the food that those probiotics need to thrive. If you don't have ample prebiotics, the probiotics you're consuming will be undernourished and not be able to help your health in the way that you want. Speaking of your health, there's also a common misconception that probiotics or symbiotics are for people with gut issues, which is so not true. Like, yes, the seed symbiotic is amazing for your gut health, but your gut health impacts everything in your entire body, your skin, your mental health, your cardiovascular health, your ability to actually assimilate the maximum amount of nutrients from all that healthy food you're eating. Having a happy gut is critical for all of it. It is hard to narrow down everything else that I love about seed. I am extremely particular with my supplements and I don't take many, but seed is just stellar across the board. It's been tested and tested and tested. Seriously, their testing process is bananas to make sure that it has 100% survival through the digestive process, which is so rare. And somehow they do all of that without needing refrigeration, which is very handy. I find that when I have refrigerated probiotics, I just forget about them and they get buried behind like old jars of pasta sauce, whereas I keep these on my bedside table, so I'm reminded to take them every single night. They also contain the 24 strains that are the most scientifically studied to support your whole body's health. I am obviously passionate about this stuff. Taking care of my gut has been a key part of my own anxiety journey and seed has been a vital part of that. So feel free to reach out with any questions. And if you like learning about gut health and how probiotics and prebiotics actually function, I highly recommend heading over to seed.com. They have a whole educational section that breaks down the science behind your microbiome in some of the easiest to understand ways that I have ever seen. And if you'd like to try Seed for yourself and pretty much change your life forever, you can get 15% off your first month's supply of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic by going to seed.com slash daily dash symbiotic and using the code Liz Moody. Again, that's code Liz Moody on seed.com slash daily dash S-Y-N-B-I-O-T-I-C. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, let's get into some entrepreneurial stuff. I think a lot of people dream of like starting a company and selling it to Google, but you've done that, which is really cool. So what advice would you give to somebody who like came to you and was like, I want to do that someday, man. Like, how do I start? 
I mean, I think I'm very fortunate to have had that experience. I think that the most important thing to any kind of successful entrepreneurial endeavor is to realize like it's way worse when you dig into like how that experience was for almost every entrepreneur than what you see on the outside. It's like, Ooh, this person runs a business, this. And then you're like, Oh no, but it is all consuming. Like I couldn't have even imagined having a startup and a kid and like starting a family and being a present uh, member of the family. Yeah. You know, the decision of what's best for the family wouldn't have gone as well. So the only thing that makes the really hard parts work is knowing that like, this is the thing you really want to do. So I would say if someone, the worst reason to start a company is because you want to start a company. Like the best reason to start a company is that there's a thing that you're so passionate about doing or making or producing or selling that like you can't think of doing anything else other than that. That's like a great reason, which when times are really tough, which they inevitably will be, you're like, okay, I can get through that tough time and do that next thing. So when people come to me and they're like, God, I would love to start a company. I'd be like, well, don't think about it as I would love to start a company. Mm. Think about it as what do you love doing? Can you do that? Maybe it starts as a side hustle and it's not a company. And by the way, starting something as a side hustle is a great way to test whether it has legs before you quit your job and try yeah. to make it work. And, and then to full transparency, the company we started that we sold to Google, yes, we did get some money for doing it, but like it was not a successful company. Like We started a company, it didn't work, and Google was like, hey, if you shut your company down, we'll hire you to work at Google and we'll give you like a bonus for joining Google that like I wouldn't say was all that different from the signing bonus some people might get. So it wasn't, you know, it always looks, even in that example, the way you introed it sounds more glamorous than like, I took a job at Google. I got effectively a signing bonus that wasn't that different for me than if I probably had gotten a job at Google. Yeah. And then in order to get the other money, I had to work there for three years which was kind of like getting an annual bonus right. or working at Google. So, you know, our investors loved that we framed it as an acquisition because their investment looks great and all that. And they didn't lose money. But at the end of the day, all of the wins of entrepreneurship look better than, than they might seem often. And yeah. all of the losses usually get swept under the rug because we don't like to talk about it. But, you know, I've had two companies that on paper were acquired and both companies were effectively failures and that like the company didn't work. Interesting. How does it even if the company's not working, how does it even get on the radar of like a Google or Wealthfront? In both of the cases, we like emailed people at these companies. Oh, and that's said, hey, interesting. I'm working on this company. You know, I remember the email to Google and it specifically said, we have this problem. We love solving it, but we think it could be even more impactful if we were working on pro- working on the problem with more scale. It was like basically the email was, "Hey, we want to work on a bigger problem. You guys have a bigger problem. We should come work at Google." And they just like emailed you back and were like, and were like let's, yeah, "Let's have let's a talk chat." About it. Now, in that case, my co-founder had a well relatively established brand in the industry, and they okay. really wanted him to come work at Google. And I kind of got to go along for the ride. Okay. In the case of my most recent company, Grove, which was all about financial planning, Wealthfront was trying to solve a similar problem to what we were solving in a very, very fundamentally different way. And they were like, oh, why don't you come and work on that problem? But we shut the company down. No one got any money when we did it. Mm-hmm. We got jobs. We got stock packages like we normally would. Our investors got to invest in Wealthfront, but it wasn't like a true we're buying your stock. Interesting. Like no no one's stock was purchased. That's interesting. It's 
interesting to me how much a lot of this stuff seems to come down to like who you know as much as what you're doing. Like your co-founder was known by Google or he knew the people at Google. How much do you think that your network impacts your ability to have this type of career versus, you know, the skill set and what you're actually doing? I would say your network, it's like 99% network. Really? It's like mostly network and luck and like a little bit like right place. Well, I guess right place, right time is luck. So like. So then how do you build that network? I think that's such a fast, like you were on Tim Ferriss's podcast. He was on yours as well, right? Like, yeah, we aired the episode from on his show both. on mine. So like, you know, Tim Ferriss. I feel like I listened to the, did you guys meet at the rock climbing gym? Uh, I, met, that- I met my old co-founder who is friends with Tim, which is how I met Tim through that relationship. Okay. So the mutual friend, which is how I met Tim, was from meeting at a rock climbing gym. Okay. Um, I feel like all the nexus of networking in the Bay Area seems to be the rock climbing gym. Yeah, I think in 2008, it was like that was a that was- hot spot. <laughs> I would say the thing that I would do all the time, here's a great example. If I went to a conference, yeah, I would email the people organizing the conference in advance and be like, do you have an attendee list? And sometimes they'd send it, sometimes they wouldn't. At a minimum, all the speakers of the conference are always listed on the website. Okay. And then I would go and I would look at all the speakers' names. I would download it, make a list. Then I would go find all the people that I wanted to meet. And then I would go download a picture of all the people. And I would put a a headshot next to the name and put it in the notes app on my phone. And like when I'm standing there, like, who do I go talk to? I would like scroll through and be like, oh, that's the person I want to talk to. Let's go talk to them. I love that because I feel like people make networking sound very casual. And I like that there's like a process and effort and energy you're putting into it. I'd say a very big chunk of all of the people I've met in my career that have been valuable came from just being genuinely, authentically valuable to people. Like I would say, oh, how can I help you out? Is there a person you want to meet? Uh, Is there a problem I can help solve? And do you feel like even from that though, I think a lot of people feel like when they talk to these people who they feel like are more advanced in their careers that they don't have anything to offer, which is why they're just asking for like, you know, I've heard I've heard people give the advice that like a mentorship should be two-way. You should be offering something to your mentor position. But I think a lot of people are like, well, they're so successful. What do I even have to bring to the table? I would say two two thoughts come to mind. One, that there are a lot of people that like to be heard and feel wise, if you will. I, I, use, I say wise because I would often send an email to people that I think I didn't know what I could offer them. And I would say, hey, I would love if you could share some of your wisdom on this topic. And I found that that email got really good responses because people are like, wow, this person like, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Mm. I would love to be an edge, you know, it's like, you know, let them be a college professor for an hour on a call with you. Yeah. And like, you know, people like that, I mean, you know, it feeds the ego, which is something we have, whether we want it or not. So that's one. But the other is, you know, let's say you were really excited about working at some company and you don't have, you know, you're fresh out of college. You could provide value by trying to add value to the company. Let's say someone really wants to get to know you. They could go out and say, hey, I found a podcast you've never been on. I emailed the host of that podcast about how amazing you were and you have to have Liz on the show. And they could email you and say, hey, Liz, I found this podcast. It has a pretty big following. I reached out to the host. I told him how much I think you're amazing and the topics Mm. you could talk about. Would you be interested? I bet you would say, yeah, I would love to. It will help me build my brand. It'd be a good conversation. All that took was like a little bit of like hustle and like cold outreach and And like initiative. I think a lot of people I have a life motto that's like never be the one to say no to yourself. And I think a lot of people are like, I could never do that. Like, why would they even listen to my email or whatever? And it's like, well, try it. Like, it's not 
it, it might not go well. It might go well, but there's no harm in trying it. Yeah. So that's what I always I, I did an episode on someone else's show. It's a show called Choose Fi for financial independence. And it was like called How to Get Any Job. And it was just like when I wanted a job at a company, I was like, what is every way to get in front of this company? I made like a presentation. I emailed it to them. I asked one of the investors if they'd listen to me. It was like, I just want to work at this company. And eventually I got a job at this company. I didn't just send my resume and say like, oh, they never wrote back. That's it. Like, right. I was like, let's try everything. And it ended up working. I love that. Accepting that you're not going to always network also with the top person. I think there's a lot of people that go to a conference and they're like, ooh, Mark Cuban's on stage. I'm going to try to talk to Mark Cuban. I promise that if you want to get in front of Mark Cuban, finding someone that works at his company who's close to him and pitching that person is one, going to be way easier to get to because they're not as in demand as him. They're actually going to listen. And it's probably going to increase your likelihood that he finds out about it. So if you have an awesome company, you want to get in front of Mark Cuban, like find someone on his team, talk to them and get to know them. And that's probably more likely to work than trying to get in front of Mark Cuban. I also think that building a network of people who are in the same place as you in your career is really valuable too. And something that people don't talk about enough. They're like, you need to kind of always be networking, essentially, people who are where you want to be later. But like in social media, for instance, finding people who are kind of at the same level as you, and then you can all grow together. If you're all starting a company at the same time, I think that there's value in both in kind of being with the group you can grow with and then having the people who are more in the mentorship role who can teach you things. And certainly some of those peers are going to go on to, to a more accelerated or a less yeah. accelerated career than you. And the ones that aren't moving as fast are an opportunity for you to mentor them. And the ones who are moving faster are an opportunity for you to get mentored. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to today's podcast guest. You're definitely familiar with them if you follow me on Instagram because I've talked about them like a million times. I basically need to have my nails look cute all the time since I'm shooting so many videos with my hands in them. I also feel like having my nails be bright and happy and colorful is such a tiny, easy way to boost my mood. And there's actually a lot of science around how seeing beautiful colors makes us happier, so why not harness that on our hands, which we see all day long? That's where Olive and June comes in. I've been using Olive and June's Manny system to give myself at-home manicures for the past two years. And I'm honestly still shocked every single time at how good it looks. Since I used to do my nails at home before Olive and June, and it truly looked like a five-year-old had painted them. There are a few secrets to Olive and June's Manny system, which comes with literally everything you need to give yourself a perfect manicure. First, it is so much more affordable than going out and getting a manicure. We're talking like $2 a Manny versus $35 for the same overall results. Also, it comes with the best nail clippers that I have ever used. They're really grippy, so they don't slip. And they're straight across so you can do all types of nail shapes, not just oval. And then their cuticle serum is amazing. They actually don't think it's ideal to trim cuticles and the serum makes it so you don't have to. And then there's something called the poppy, which you pop on the top of the nail polish and it makes it so much easier to paint with your non-dominant hand. It's a genius little tool. It's wide and flat, so it's so much easier to grip than the tiny little nail polish cap. It stabilizes your hand and it aligns the brush the right way on your nail so you get a perfect even stroke every single time. And then the polishes themselves are phenomenal. First of all, they literally look like gels. They are so shiny and they don't chip and they last for ages. I'm looking at my nails right now and I painted them like a week ago today, maybe even a little bit longer, and they look like I could have gotten a manicure this morning. 
They also have the cutest colors. I'm loving like bright, happy colors for spring, but I also think doing sort of like a neutral ombre is such a vibe. And they have the perfect colors for both of those looks and so many more. I've honestly never been able to dream up a color in my head that I haven't been able to find on their website. And then the top coat makes everything look so polished and shiny and perfect. And here's a fun secret. Apply a new coat of the top coat every few days. It'll reinvigorate your mani and make it look absolutely perfect even longer. And of course, Olive and June's polishes are always seven free, meaning they're completely free of the seven toxic chemicals most commonly found in nail polish formulas. I'm wearing Energize on my nails right now, which is the prettiest light green. And I'm also loving Ura 10, which is like an orange sherbet color, and BP, which is the prettiest pale blue. I also think that the Malibu Sunset Set is so chic. Whenever I wear it, I get a zillion compliments. If you want an even more instant Manny, Olive and June just launched their press-ons, which are not only so cutely designed, but actually stay put, are made from recycled materials, and don't damage your nails. If you would like to try Olive and June for yourself and have manis that last over a week, visit oliveandjune.com slash healthier20 for 20% off your first Manny system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash H-E-A-L-T-H-I-E-R-2-0 for 20% off your first Manny system. And then send me pics on Insta of your gorgeous nails. I am so excited to see them. Now, let's get back to the episode. Okay, we're going to get into investing stuff in just a second, but just to kind of put a little bow on the entrepreneurial stuff, I love super pragmatic, like actionable, tangible takeaways, which obviously you do too. You're like the all the hacks guy. If somebody was listening and they had a little nugget of an idea in their brain and they wanted to start a company, could you give them like one thing they could do today, whether it's a you know, workbook exercise or an app they could download or one thing they could look up on the internet, but just something really tangible that they could do right now. Yeah, I mean, I think we get caught up in all of the, ooh, I have an idea. What's my business plan? Ooh, I have an idea. What should I make a website about? I would say find the like most simple way to test whether people will rip the thing out of your hands. So, you know, it's a process. There's a book called Four Steps to the Epiphany and they walk through customer development which is something you can do without building your product, without creating it. I would say, go read that book. Mm. It's, it's like definitely an old school book. It's not, it's not like a cool, fun book, but it's <laughs> it, like the general idea is if you think that this thing will cause people to rip the product out of your hands, you want your customers like pulling it from you. You can go test that without even building the product. Mm. Call If you think it's a product for people who uh, you know are fed up with dieting, go stand around the mall, try to find 10 people who are fed up with dieting and be like, would you buy this product? Mm. Uh, I think trying to validate the idea is something we don't do as much of as trying to create the product. Um. So, you know, instead of saying, ooh, let's go spend three months trying to make the coolest X, go talk about X to 10 people and see if they're even excited. Because that. that that would be what it is. Go run a process that at Wealthfront we call customer development, but that you know, the, the book Four Steps, The Epiphany walks through, go test it out and go customer develop it before spending the time to go start a company and definitely do that nights and weekends. Like don't quit your job to go find out if people are desperate for what you're building. Yeah. Are there any other books that were really helpful to you in your entrepreneurial journey? The Hard Thing About Hard Things is a great book from Ben Horowitz. I really liked it. Um, I might send you a couple other ideas if okay. you want to put them in the show yeah. notes, but Hard thing about hard things is like one of those ones that really, really works. And then in a nutshell, like what's it about? Like a sentence I mean, or it, two? It's interesting. It's kind of a book where there's like 25 chapters about different things instead of 
There's another book that I really liked, and I interviewed uh, this guy, David Marquet, and he's a former submarine captain. I think I listened to that one. I, I like it was one of those episodes of yours that I was like, do I want to listen to this? And then I was like, oh, this is really valuable and very different than what I thought it would be. Yeah. And I'd listen to him. You can find a YouTube video from him or just listen to the episode that we recorded on all the hacks. But his general leadership principle is like, don't tell people what to do, which is like almost the exact opposite of everything you've ever heard about leadership ever. And he was wildly successful in doing it. He took the worst performing submarine in the entire naval fleet to be the best. It produced more naval captains from the crew than any other ship. Wait, so the idea is if you don't tell people what to do, how are they knowing what to do? Yeah, so most people know have an idea of what to do. So instead of saying, hey, can you go do X? Say, hey, what do you think we should do? And then someone can come to you and say, I think we should... Change the website to be green. And you could be you could ask clarifying questions be like, why green? And you can try to help coach them through inquisition, but let them own the decision. Let them own the recommendation. So he had everyone say, You can't come to me and ask what to do. You can come to me and say, This is what I intend to do. And I can either say, Here's why you shouldn't do it, or I can say yes. But like put the put the like the onus on the other person. Onus on the other person. Give them the autonomy to make the decision. And you can always veto it. You can always ask questions to help them get to the right place. But as a CEO, when I was running a company, I watched the video or or reread parts of his book like every year. Interesting. Okay, let's get into investing. I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm like very much newbie status with all money stuff. So I want to approach this from a newbie perspective, but I want to get into some of the more like complicated stuff. I just feel like people are either like very high level or very low level. And I want to start low and go high, essentially. Okay, I will do my best. So can you explain to me like a five-year-old how you approach investing in your own life? Like what is your investment strategy? Why are you investing? What's the thought behind it all? Yeah, I'll even go one step before and be okay. like, is it saving or investing? And like, where, where do you think difference? about the difference? Yeah, sure. For me, and I think there are people that are fall into two camps. You're like a default spender and a default saver. And if you're a default saver, unfortunately, for the rest of the world, like you're in a great spot. And if you're a default spender, it's harder. Because, you know, as a default saver, which I am, it's like every dollar I make is for the future. And I kind of feel in my mind like I'm borrowing from it to spend money. Mm. And it just makes it easier to save. On the flip side, when you have money, it makes it harder to spend, which sounds like, you know, a champagne problem. Yeah, yeah. But like the, there are But a then lot it's of- also like, what's the point? Like literally, I feel like sometimes you look up from like working so hard and you're like, what's the point of doing this if I'm not for, for to what end? Like money is a tool to an end that it literally doesn't exist to like sit somewhere. Yeah, there's a great book called Die With Zero. And the whole principle is like, you don't want to just die no, yeah, with pools 100%. of money. You want to enjoy your life. So- I won't go into budgeting because it's like a whole rabbit hole of things that lots of people have different opinions. If you want to start playing around, check out YNAB. It's a pretty cool app. Uh, YNAB? YNAB. You need a budget. If you want to talk about budgeting, they have a whole podcast that digs into a handful of things, a great blog. But as a default spender, you have to learn, okay, I need to set aside money for the future. Why? Because we're not all going to work until we die. And, you know, some of us need to have money when we live. Uh, most of us. So uh, if you look at your longevity in your life, most people stop working in their 60s or 70s. And and we have an expectation now of like, I want to live till I'm 90 or 100. It's like, you need to save enough money so that you have 30 years of you know spending 
funded by your savings, which is a hard thing to do, which is why lots of people work much longer than they want. So when I think of saving, it's like, okay, all the money that I'm not going to spend, where do I put it? And my first place that I always put it is I want to set aside enough money. So if something happens, I, I just have money. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I have zero savings, my bank account has $10 in it, like goal one should be maybe set aside like a month worth of expenses so that if something happened, you didn't have to borrow money. Because as the second thing I focus on is like paying down any expensive debt because it's really expensive to borrow money. With the exception of like a mortgage and some student loans and maybe some auto loans, like debt is expensive. Credit cards can be over 20%. Medical loans can be expensive. And there's no point in putting money in an investment account that maybe you hope will earn 7% if you could otherwise pay off debt that's growing at 25%. So once you've knocked off those two things, you're like, okay, I've paid off high, high interest debt and I've set aside enough cash that if something were to happen, I could use it because I don't have enough in my regular spending account. Then I'm like, great, maybe you should invest. And by invest, I mean, set aside money for the future in a way that it grows, hopefully exponentially. If you've ever heard someone talk about the magic of compound interest, it's that you know if you have $100 and you get 6%, you have $106. Next year, you're going to get 6% on the 106. And the next year, you're going to get 6% on that other number. It's the people who like to make you feel bad about not knowing any of this stuff when you're like 22. Because they're like, oh, if you'd been doing this since you were 22... You look how rich you'd be now. And I'm like, well, I'm in my 30s and I did not do that. Yeah. But the reality is, okay, great. You probably had a fun time. Oh. You know? <laughs> you didn't say <laughs> that, which I remember. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so I would say now is a good time to start. You know, it's, it's probably true. We did. That we started literally, probably, my husband and I started like last year investing. Great. That's better than starting in five uh, years. Next year. Yeah. So I think anytime you're ready to get started, that's a great time. Okay. And the reason why investing is better than just putting money in your checking account is that in general, um, the stock market over the history of the last 100 years has grown, depending on what sector it was, more than 5%. And cash right now, if you deposit it at like Chase or Wells Fargo, is going to grow at 0.01% maybe. So you're losing money. I think that's something that like is almost hard to get your head around. But like if you just put money in a savings account, you actually are losing money with the rate of inflation over time. Yeah. Right now. I mean, inflation prior to this year has been pretty low and yeah. no one's really noticed it. And I'm sure your your parents or your grandparents are like, I remember when a bottle of milk was five cents yeah. and that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, the, if they had left their money in their checking account, they probably wouldn't have had a lot. But when you invest your money in the stock market, a lot of the goods that you buy are being sold by companies. So as the prices of those goods go up, those companies make more money because the goods are more expensive. And so, you know, the investing in this stock market is a way to kind of hedge inflation. And so that's generally why you want to invest. The challenge with investing is that as we've seen in 2008, as we've seen in 2000, as we saw briefly during uh, the pandemic, the stock market can go down. Yeah. Uh, and so the general rule without getting too crazy is like, if you need money in the next five years, putting it in the stock market is not the best option for most people because investing your money and then having it go down and then having to sell it is the worst thing to do. Right. If you had sold all of your portfolio when in like March of 2020, after the market crashed 30%, you would have missed out on the fact that we actually ended 2020 up higher right. than we started. 
And so when I think of investing, I'm putting money in that I don't need for more than five years. And in many cases, for 20, 30 years. And finding a place to do that, whether you want to go and research index funds and buy them yourself, whether you want to pick a product like Wealthfront um, or other software products online to invest your money, that's fine. And, and they'll do it for you. So that's kind of like your options is do it yourself and learn or find someone to do it. You can use a financial advisor as well. The fees end up being expensive. And so I, it's hard for me to recommend it because that comes out of your return. A financial advisor can be really helpful with a process called financial planning. I actually started a whole company around this that didn't work out. But the process of financial planning is like take an inventory of where you're at, what you're doing, and try to see what kinds of optimizations you can put into place. How much should you invest? How should you invest it? Do you need a, a trust or a will for your family? Uh, all that kind of stuff. That process you get usually for free with a financial advisor, but you pay for over 30 years as a percent of your money. You can also hire a financial planner one time for maybe $2,000 and they'll go through that process for you and you can hire them each year to update it. I like to separate those two things because the percentage of my investments, you know, model doesn't make sense. If I'm, you know, have 10 times as much money, why would I pay the person 10 times as much to go through the exact same process? So the other big problem is that most financial advisors, the vast majority in the US are making most of their money by selling products where, for which there are usually better, cheaper alternatives. Those products are often life insurance, whole life and universal life. They can make sometimes as much as like the entire premiums you pay for the whole first year they get to keep. And then there's lots of really high fee mutual funds that a lot of financial advisors sell. So the general question is ask any person that's a financial advisor whether they're a fiduciary. And if they give you anything other than an answer that is yes, and the most common answers are, let me talk about why I care about you. And, but if it's not yes, that means they're not actually legally required to do what's in your best interest. Oh, wow. What you'll find is that many advisors, the vast majority of them in the US are not fiduciaries. They're broker dealers and they make their money from commissions. Oh, that's so interesting. They're required to get it directionally right. So if you say, I want to invest in the stock market, they have to give you a stock market fund. Uh, and if they gave you something totally different, they could get in trouble. But they could give you one where they're making 2% of every dollar you give them versus one that's exactly the same and they don't make anything and only cost you 0.05%. Okay, so if you get a financial advisor, ask, are they a fiduciary? And if they don't say yes, run for the hills. That's my advice. Okay, good. I think a lot of the confusion around investment, and this is something I was very much guilty of, is that we're like, oh, I have some money. How do I use this money to like get rich right now? And every person that I've ever... <laughs> heard talk about investment who seems knowledgeable about the subject is like, no, it's more just like you're hedging the market. It's a long-term play, blah, 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 blah. Is there anything that you can do if you have money to just like get richer right now? Not with, I mean, the whole thing is risk, right? Right. There are, you think about a casino, right? There are a lot of ways you get rich really quick at a casino. You're just much more likely to not get rich. Right. When it comes to your money, it's the exact same thing. If there were an obvious way that you could just take money and get rich, like, Whoever Everybody knew about would it wouldn't do be it. telling you. Well, are there things that like the really rich people know that we don't know as normal people? There are a handful of, you know, like tax treatments that might help out. But at the end of the day, like the types of investments that really rich people make, let's take endowments. So if you look at the story um, that Andy Ratcliffe, who founded Wealthfront, had was that he sat on the board 
at the University of Pennsylvania for their endowment committee, which is like most giant universities have billions of dollars sitting in a bank account that people have donated. And it's the university's goal to invest that money. And they have billions of dollars. It's like, right. how are we going to invest this money? He's like, why can't we just build software that does it the same way? It's like, we're going to invest in these index funds that are super low cost. Granted, are they making some private investments in venture capital and stuff like that that you can't? Probably. But is the majority of the money in like broad market exposure? Yes. And so if you look at my investment portfolio, it's really boring. It's like I, I have a bunch of money in a you know few index funds that are yeah. low cost that try to play the market. I'm not trying to beat the market. Yeah. I'm just trying to like cruise with the market because right. historically it's done pretty well. Yeah. Okay. Can I ask you about some like individual things? Yeah. Okay. So what do we think about NFTs? So I think that sh- like NFTs are interesting. People buy sneakers and handbags that mat- from the materials they're made with cost the exact same to make as other ones, except because of the brands that are associated with them, they're worth 10, 50, 100,000 times as much. People like to spend money in the real world to show off the cool stuff that they have and status you could buy art and it's you're buying the art that a person made even though it might just be you know we've all seen like a piece of art in a museum that's like hmm, why is that blue canvas like worth 24 million dollars yeah. well it's because this person made it and they did it with a special i don't know sometimes the i struggle with it behind the work exactly it seems only realistic that with everyone doing things online there will be a digital version of that people are buying Axes to like mine things in Minecraft. Kids are like buying things. They want to show off their identity to their friends in mm. games. So the idea that we will have things in this digital world that we operate on on the internet that we would want to own is it, definitely true. I think there will be value there. What I don't think is that it's clear what will be value. So to say, will some people make money with NFTs? Yeah, of course. There are a lot of artists that make a lot of money. There's also a lot of art that is worthless that you could go buy. So, you know, NFTs is like a weird space. Do I think like the blockchain technology will be really powerful to the future of the internet? Yes, 100%. Do I know how to pick what company or what thing or what cryptocurrency will like a thousand X? I have no idea. Do you Um, own any crypto yourself? I own like Bitcoin and Ethereum, like major like large, but I don't own any like weird edge case, small things, hoping they're going to be wildly successful. Maybe you could argue it would have been great. Like, you know, it would have been great if I picked them. But for me, I'm not trying to pick something that I don't feel like I know more than everyone else about. And like how big of a piece of your portfolio is something like crypto? It's interesting because I was fortunate to get exposed to Bitcoin like back in 2013. I talked my husband out of buying Bitcoin and like, 2011 or something stupid like yeah it and was... i in preparation <laughs> so for... that's why we live the life we live now. um so it's grown to be a larger percentage than i would want but it's still it's like not more than 10 percent. so i like in my general rule it's like everything that isn't my long-term diverse passive portfolio of index funds is like less than 10 percent, and that lets me make stupid investments in like, oh, I think this company is really cool. Let's buy some stock in this company. Right. And I like want to actually say that very clearly because I do think a lot of people think of investment as picking individual stocks. And even when I, again, first started doing it, I was like, oh, I'm staying in Airbnbs and I like Airbnb, so I should buy Airbnb or like, let's make a bet on alternative energy for the future or something like that. But you view individual stocks as like fun investments too. 
I think for me, individual stocks are a fun investment because I'm not creating a system whereby I'm going to invest in enough of them that I'm going, it's going to be more passive. Uh, I interviewed a guy named Brian Feraldi a few weeks ago, and he has, he's created this investor investing checklist that he follows and he invests in lots of stocks. And his methodology for investing in stocks is much more like my methodology for investing in index funds. It's playing the broad market, buying and hold for a really long time. Okay. If I'm just picking a random company that I think is cool, but I haven't done a bunch of research, yeah. like there are people in Wall Street who's like there is a person whose only job is to decide whether Apple is a good buy right now. Right. Every day, all this person is doing is reading research about Apple, reading news about Apple, yeah. looking at financial reports about Apple, maybe hiring people to stand outside of Apple stores to like count yeah. whether the, the number of people going into the Apple store is going up or down. I feel like that person is a better judge of whether Apple is a good buy right now than me. I'd rather buy all the companies yeah. because then I just own the whole basket. And when Apple does well, like I Yay. own some Apple. Yeah. That's great. Every now and then there's a company where I'm like, this company's really cool. Uh, let's just buy it and see what happens because I think it's cool. I'm not betting that it's a good buy right now. I'm betting that maybe this company will be uh, like 10 times bigger in the future, which is something that I often get wrong. But it's kind of, I'd like to say that having the fun investments with 10 or less percent of my portfolio makes investing exciting because the 90% is super boring. I bought like five index funds and they just sit there for 10 years. I don't do anything. Yeah. I have to say when I realized that's what investing was, I was deeply disappointed. Yeah. Investing. So like <laughs> the investing that I think builds most people's wealth uh, consistently is super boring. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. Did you know there are actually two distinct types of blueberries, wild blueberries and ordinary blueberries? You might have seen them in the packages in the freezer section of the grocery store that say wild on them, and that's actually way more important than you might think. When compared to ordinary blueberries, wild blueberries have 33% more anthocyanins, a flavonoid that gives plants their dark purpley blue color and is well studied for its anti-diabetic, anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties, as well as its ability to help with the prevention of cardiovascular diseases. Wild blueberries also have two times more antioxidants, 72% more fiber, and 32% less sugar than ordinary blueberries. And honestly, I think they taste better too. They've never been hybridized or genetically modified to enhance or alter their naturally occurring characteristics. So they have a lot more genetic diversity than a lot of the produce that you might find at the grocery store, and that diversity gives wild blueberries a wonderfully complex, sweet, tart flavor that is utterly addictive. Each berry also tends to be slightly smaller in size than ordinary blueberries, which I find makes them work way better in baked goods. I use them every time I make the healthy blueberry muffins that I recently shared on my Instagram, and they always turn out so good. I also love them in smoothies. Smoothies for me are a time to pack in as many nutrients as possible to start my day off right and to have a flavor that I'm excited to get out of bed for. And wild blueberries check both of those boxes. My favorite right now is a few cups of frozen wild blueberries, spinach, a banana, tahini, vanilla protein powder, cinnamon, sea salt, and water to blend. It is absolute heaven. Wild blueberries are truly wild. Unlike regular blueberries, they're never planted. They grow naturally where Mother Nature put them thousands of years ago, which is honestly so crazy to think about. So that means that you can get them fresh if you find yourself in Maine during the summer. But fear not, because 90% of the wild blueberry harvest is flash frozen. You know I love 
frozen produce because it often has even more nutrients than fresh since it's frozen at the peak of ripeness and you don't lose nutrients in transit. And in the case of these wonderful nuggets of joy, it means that you can get wild blueberries in the freezer aisle in most grocery stores around the country. Just look for the packaging that says wild blueberries and you should be good. But if you want more information or recipe inspiration, definitely go to wildblueberries.com or check out the link in the show notes. That's wildblueberries.com or check out the link in the show notes. Now let's get back to the episode. This is a little bit of a weird question, but outside of investing or even inside of it, if somebody was just like, well, I just want to like be rich sooner. Like I just want to have more (laughs) money sooner. Is there anything you would say to them? I don't think money buys happiness in the way that someone who would ask that question would be thinking. So there's an interesting book called Happy Money, and it talks about like the five ways to spend money to truly make you happy. I'd say go read that book, and you'd realize that you might already have enough money to do a lot of those things. So I, I, would, I would say... You'd challenge the assumption. I would definitely challenge the assumption. Start talking to your friends that you are jealous of because you think they have more money because you saw their Instagram post of going on some ridiculous vacation yeah. and ask them like, hey, quick question. Like, do you guys have any debt? The number of times we've helped in my past roles, people who you would think had tons of money because the way they live and in the reality is that they're not rich. They do not have, you know, they're over their skis. I think there's just this misconception where it's totally normal to post all the great things of your life on the internet. I haven't seen a lot of people go online and be like, hey, we couldn't pay our bills this month. Like, that's not a thing people post on Instagram. Like, what photo would even go with that? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, here's the, the eviction notice. my on, computer. On my, on my door. It's just, I don't know why, like, what is rich mean to someone? So there's a community called the Financial Independence Community. That's or, FIRE, right? So FIRE is like the retire early version. Financial Independence is just, I want enough money to not have to work if I don't want to. Versus retire early is like, I want to stop working as soon as possible. The general thing that I think everyone kind of agrees on is trying to get the most money is not as impactful as trying to spend less money. So for me, as someone who wanted that independence to be able to do whatever I want, one option is, okay, well, if I live the life I'm living now and I'm spending as much as I'm spending now, and the general rule of thumb, very general, is like, you need 25 times whatever you spend to stop working forever. So if you spend $100,000 a year, you need $2.5 million. You can cut that down to $50,000 a year. Now you only need $1.25 million. And the idea is you're not, you're putting that in some sort of investment. So you're getting, it's growing growing. over time. So so the idea was they did, there was a study that was done that said, uh, you know, in general, you can live off an investment portfolio taking 4% out every year, the 4% rule. And Four percent, one divided by 0.04 is 25. So it's like you need 25 times or you need money that you can live off 4% of. And so the if you have a million dollars, you can live off 40K for the rest of your life. So one option is, okay, well, I don't want to live off 40K. I want to live off 500 grand. So now I need to go find a way to, to make you know $12 million or something. The other option is, how do I find ways in my life to cut back and do it creatively? So I think like the entire theme of the financial side of my life and my podcast is like, what are creative ways to go on vacations where you're not having to stay at the Motel 8 in, you know, yeah. off the side of the highway in the middle of nowhere, but you can go on a really lavish vacation, but you can do it with points or you can do it with miles or you can do it with hacks so that you don't have to spend as much. 
So ultimately, you can bring down your annual cost of living, which means you can save more, which means you can get rich faster if you want to think about it that way. Uh, But you could also just need less each year, which would make it easier for you to be financially independent. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. Zach was recently out of town for a few days and my sister slept over because, you know, I'm in my 30s and the thought of being in a dark house alone at night still terrifies me. Of course, in the morning, I made us both glasses of AG1 by Athletic Greens and she told me that I have been talking about it all wrong. I listen to your podcast every week, she said, and honestly, she does. And it's so cute and it makes me so happy. And you do not convey how delicious it is. She told me she'd been afraid to try it because she thought it would taste vegetal like green juice, when actually it tastes like some kind of vanilla candy, she said, or like really fancy bubblegum. Anyway, she's now addicted, and I promised her that I would tell you that AG1 not only tastes good for a nutritional drink, but it just tastes good, period. Like it is very enjoyable to drink. And then how you feel after makes it even more enjoyable. I love how much energy it gives me, especially since I don't drink caffeine. I often will use it as more of like a mid-afternoon pick-me-up to beat back that slumpy 3 p.m. feeling. And I feel so good after I drink it. Alert, but not jittery at all, just sharp and ready to take on whatever's next in my day. And that makes sense. AG1 has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods or superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that were specifically selected to support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. And maybe even more importantly, they actually use clinically researched amounts of everything they include. So you're actually getting the studied benefits. I checked on that because a lot of times, even if it says something on the package, it's like such a tiny pinch that it's basically just marketing. It's got things like ashwagandha, which doctors I interview keep recommending to help with calm and balance, burdock root, chlorella, CoQ10, selenium, B vitamins, magnesium glycinate, a bunch of greens and veggies. It's just such good insurance that you're getting all of the nutrients you need to feel your absolute best no matter what happens for the rest of the day. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. And they're third-party tested, which is always so important to look for. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash healthier together. I love the travel packs. I keep one with me pretty much at all times. And the vitamin D3 and K2 is amazing. You actually always want to make sure that you look for K2 with your D3 because the K2 helps the D transport calcium to your bones where it's needed rather than calcifying in your arteries. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash healthier together to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, let's get into point hacking. (laughs) what like everybody starts so high and they're like here's my 75 credit cards and like here's the miles and whatever and i'm just like okay the the goal of point hacking right is that just by spending the normal money you spend in your life you can go stay at like fancy hotels or fly first class right like that's the whole thing i mean i think the goal would be that you can not have to spend as much as you want on travel I know a lot of people that just still don't want to fly first class. Okay. Like, right. I'd rather go on three trips instead of instead in coach of one, than one first trip class. In, yeah. In, yeah, yeah. But the idea is, that can you not spend as much money on travel without having to downgrade the quality of the travel? Or even there are people who are like, "Look, I want to maximize the way I use my cards, but I just don't want to deal with 
points. So I just want to make sure I have the right cashback cards. But it's like a much easier version right. of point hacking because there's like, okay, well, if you just get a 2% cashback card for everything, you're pretty close. How lavish does the spending need to be to start having the rewards that you might see on TikTok? Yeah. So I think a lot of people accumulate most of their points through the fact that credit card companies will give you huge bonuses to sign up for a new card. Okay. So if you take an example of the Capital One Venture X, which unfortunately is not still offering, but recently offered 100,000 points when you sign up. And you had to spend, I think it was $20,000 in six months, and you got 100,000 points. If they didn't offer that, they offered two points per dollar. So you would have had to spend $50,000 to get those 100,000 points. And instead, it was actually, you got the points from the 20 you spent. So like, so you got $140,000 yeah. for spending uh, you know, $20,000. So it was, that is how a lot of travel hackers, miles and points enthusiasts optimize the system is they wait until a card has a really sweet sign-up bonus and they get that card and then they kind of hang out. Some people take it to a really intense extreme place and they're like, I'm going to open three cards every quarter so that I'm getting sign-up bonuses yeah. you know, galore. I have not taken it to that extreme personally, yeah. but you know, I would say at least a dozen times a year, there's a card with a six-figure sign-up bonus. Okay. Uh, and you're just kind of like always watching I'm out always for kind those. Of watching. The, the Chase Sapphire preferred card is soon, maybe even by the time you hear this, going to have, uh, I think, an 80,000 point signup bonus. Okay. And you let's, for the sake of argument, say you need to spend $5,000 and it earns three points on dining and two points on travel. So if you spend that 5,000 well, maybe it's 10,000 and you now have 90,000 points. Okay. 90,000 points would be enough to stay at like one of the nicest Hyatts in the world for three nights. Okay. It would be enough to stay at like a pretty great resort in Mexico that isn't the nicest Hyatt in the world for maybe five nights. Okay. So we're not talking about like, and that's for spending maybe five or $6,000. So are these like, would you basically say opening a new card, a new card equals like a, a vacation sort of? I mean, it depends on how nice a vacation you want to take. Yeah. Uh, but I would say if you're getting started and, you know, you're doing it for yourself, for sure. If you want to take a trip halfway around the world in business class and stay at, you know, an overwater bungalow in the Maldives, maybe that's like seven cards. Okay. Uh, but that's usually a thing that, you know, you're doing for your honeymoon and you're hopefully not going on lots of honeymoons. Although maybe hopefully you are but <laughs> in the same marriage. But yeah, I mean, I always tell people, like, start with a trip. What are you trying to do? If you're okay. trying to go on a certain type of trip, you know, what should you optimize for? The reality is that many hotel programs, other than Hyatt, have made it pretty hard to accrue enough points to stay in a nice hotel unless you get their credit card. So I think points and miles are best used, other than Hyatt, for flights. Okay. The caveat there, I said, was Hyatt, which is like has these amazing redemptions that you can get by transferring points to Hyatt, which you can do with a Chase card or with a built, uh, the new built card. Okay. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, okay. So is there any negative to just like opening all these new credit cards? I yeah, think like that definitely... feels very nerve wracking. Yeah. <laughs> so there's two negatives to keep in mind. One, if you're not paying your credit cards off each month, yeah. right? Like, Don't this is not this. a game for you. Yeah. Okay. This is like, fast forward to, you know, whenever we stop talking about this. You know, I think it's good for everyone to log on to Credit Karma and look at how your credit's doing. 
because, you know, every time you open up a card, it has an impact on your credit. There's probably a whole episode I haven't done, but should do. Uh, I'll find some cool article and put it, send it to you. You can put in the show notes. But when you open up a new credit card, it adds to the number of cards you have, which is a positive to your credit. When the, the whole idea of a credit score is that people who are about to lend you money want to get a sense of how reliable you are, right? The more times you've borrowed money, and effectively a credit card is like, I'm taking a loan, even though you're not drawing on it. It's like, if you've done it 20 times and paid it back, and paid it back, that's more reliable. Okay. So more cards, better. Having more credit available to you. So if you had one card with a $10,000 limit and you spend $9,000 a month, I know that you're spending 90,000, 90% of your credit every month. Okay. If you open up a second card and didn't change your spending and it also had a $10,000 limit, now you go from spending nine of 10,000 to nine of 20. Is that better? And that's better because now they're like, oh, wow, this person's actually using 45% of their available credit each month. So they're not assuming you're pushing yourself to the max. So when you open up a new card, the bonus for your credit score is that more credit means that you're using less of it each month. Does it work the reverse way? Like if you close credit cards, does it hurt your credit? Close a credit card and it had a high limit, then it would negatively impact that factor of your credit score. Okay, so, but not like you uni- it's not like close a credit card is a ding unto itself. It's just that like you're math you're using all of a sudden a greater percentage of your overall credit. Yeah. So ways around that. One, you don't really need to close a card, right? The only reason that I would say you should close a card is if it has a high annual fee and you don't want to use it anymore. Okay. But if, but if you call Chase and say, hey, have this card has a really high annual fee, can I downgrade it to a free card? Mm. Very often they will. So, and that doesn't hurt your credit at all. Nope, doesn't hurt your credit at all. So the things that really boost your credit is having cards for a really long time. So one of the factors in your credit score is the average length of credit. So if you have one card that you've had for one year and one that you've had for 11 years, maybe the average is about five. If you have only cards you've opened up this year, then it's the average year is one. Banks look at you and say, hmm, this person's average length is only one year. I don't have a lot of data. Okay. They say, this person's average length is 20 years. I have more data. So the card that you've had the longest is the one you probably don't want to close. Okay. And so I still have this one Amex that I opened up almost 20 years ago. And I never use it other than once a year. I try to put one purchase on it so that it doesn't get closed because it's like the anchor of my credit report. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so how many cards do you have right now? Like, roughly? I would say right now, if you include, like, my wife and I kind of do it together a little bit, but between the two of us, it's probably like 12. Okay. Which, which is, is like, like way That's more, not wild. It's not wild, but it's like way more than most people need. Yeah. I think for me, part of it is like, this is my, my thing, right? Like, if you go listen to my podcast, yeah. there's like a lot like of a episodes about this. I try to optimize this to a level that I don't think most people should. I think most people should say, where do I spend most of my money? okay, what card should I start with? So like one optimization is just if you spend all your money going out to eat and you spend all your money on travel and it's all dining and travel, you should probably have one of the like two or three cards that pays a high number of points on dining and travel. But should you optimize for that before you would like be optimizing for these big sign up bonuses? I mean, I would say always have like the one card that's going to maximize your regular spend because okay so So you you have your like daily use card and then you have your anchor card which is keeping your credit score good and then you have this mix in this like melange of cards you're opening because they have big sign up bonuses i would say that is how like the most extreme travel hackers are doing it they're opening up lots of cards for the bonuses 
in a perfect world, you could say, wow, let's find a card that meets my requirements for how I spend money and has a big sign up bonus. So, like, but if you then did, you only get that bonus one time, you only right? get it one time. So that's one vacation. What if you want like more than one vacation? Yeah. So if you want more than one vacation, obviously you can get more cards as you go. And the general rule of thumb is like, keep the card a year. And at the end of the year, if the net value of the card is positive, you could just keep it open, right? If the card has no annual fee, keep it open. If the card has a really high annual fee and you're not getting any benefits from it, I would try to downgrade it. I would try to ask the credit card company if they have any offers for you. They, you can call Amex and say, hey, I'm not getting a lot of value out of this card. I'm thinking about canceling it. Sometimes they'll be like, well, we'll waive the annual fee and you can try again next year. Or you could say, hey, I'm going to downgrade it to a free card and just keep it on there. If you have to, you can cancel it. I've canceled plenty of cards, but if it is helping your credit and especially if you get benefit from how you spend it, like if there's a card that pays X points per dollar on a category you spend money on, it's great to keep it in there. So is that something that you recommend too? then? Like, do you have like a dining card and like a flight card and a hotel card? Like, do you have cards you use because they offer a certain amount of points or whatever in a different category for me yes in the categories i spend a lot of money on so like yes sometimes i go to home depot i don't have like a home improvement store card because it's like not a huge part right. of our budget but if you did if you like were a reno person and you love that maybe look for a card that optimizes that type of exactly thing. so or if it, you drive a lot look for a card that optimizes gas exactly for me i know that dining and travel and groceries are three like huge areas so I definitely have a card that's like, this is the grocery card, this is the travel card, and this is the dining card. Are those? So for groceries, if you're like a Whole Foods or Amazon Fresh person, even though it's not a points card, it's hard to argue with getting 5% cash back with like the Chase Amazon Prime card. Okay. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. So Chase has a card that gives you 5% back on Amazon, Whole Foods. And it's not points. So it'll help you go on the vacation with dollars. Yeah, yeah. But 5% like, yeah. Cash back. The Amex Gold gives four points per dollar on groceries. So if I'm going to like a Safeway or the local grocery store here, Lenardi's, which is not part of Whole Foods or Amazon, then I use that. Okay. You know, I have a Chase Sapphire Reserve, which is three points on travel, three points on dining. That's the only card I have, and I use it on everything, which I feel like is what I'm trying to get away from. Yeah. But that's a good card. Let's take you as an example. Let's pause for a second. So you use that card. And one of the things that I think a mistake some people can get into is like, oh, there's another bonus. So now I open up an Amex card and now I open up a Chase card and now I have a City card and now I have points all over the place. Yeah. It can be hard to use them because, you know, Amex might transfer to Delta and Chase transfers to United. It's like, how do I make use of all this? Right. So until you want to go to like level two, I would just start with how do I stay in one ecosystem? So you're playing in the Chase Ultimate Rewards system right now and you've got a great card for travel and dining. And Which I did not know, but good yeah, to know. <laughs> it's great for travel and dining. Three points for dollar travel, three points for dollar on dining, but everything else is getting one point. Chase has a card that's the Chase Freedom Unlimited card, and you get one and a half points on everything. So the simple like one, two Chase game is I've got Sapphire Reserve, everything travel dining, Freedom Unlimited, everything else. Two cards, that's it. You're getting one and a half points on everything that isn't travel and dining on one card three points on travel and dining done and should i wait until there's a big signing bonus to open my freedom unlimited so the freedom unlimited is a rare zero annual fee card and so it's not really going to be uh you know a huge sign up bonus card in the first place every now and then they have like a promo where it's like for three months you get three percent back on everything 
but it's not the kind of card where you're going to see a huge bonus because there's no annual fee. So in your case, that that could be something. If you don't spend a lot on travel, this is like a, a hack. If you don't spend a lot on travel, one thing you could do is you could say, you know what? I don't actually need the Sapphire Reserve. I'm not getting as much benefit out of it. The Sapphire Preferred is three points on dining also, but only two on travel. So you're gonna miss out on the extra point on travel. But maybe for you, you're like the annual fee has gone up. It's almost, I think it's like $600 now. Maybe you're not getting as much value. You can say, okay, I'm gonna downgrade my Chase Reserve to the Freedom Unlimited. So I don't cancel it. Now it's free. And then you can go open up the Sapphire Preferred, which is going to have an $80,000 sign-up bonus soon. Now you still have two chase cards, but you got a bonus by opening up the Sapphire Preferred. Now, I wouldn't do that if you're actually traveling enough that that extra one point is worth travel it. Travel include gas usually, or is that like a different type of travel? Okay, so yeah, it's, like it's like flights. Hotels, rental cars, flights, okay. that kind of stuff. Okay, interesting. And do you think that getting like a Delta card or a Hyatt, car- a Hyatt card or a Hilton card, like the cards of the travel companies is ever worth it? So it's funny. I, I know a lot of people have United Card because San Francisco United Hub, and the United Card usually pays like one or two United miles per dollar, maybe even three. But the Chase Reserve pays three Chase points, and you can transfer a Chase point to a United point. So you just say Chase, send my points to United. So it's actually better. So I was telling someone, I was like, you know, you have two cards. The one that d- isn't the United Card actually earns more United, United miles points. than the United Card, and they were like, dang it. And they were like, but I get a free check bag. I was like, I know you'll get a free check bag even if you don't spend money on it. So you can keep it for the free check bag. Right. But just put the United purchases oh, on that's your case card. It really depends. It's hard to earn Hilton points unless you're staying at Hilton or using a Hilton credit card because most of the hotel program's points are just worth a lot less. And all of the credit card companies, if you want to transfer your Chase points to Hilton, or which you can't, but if you want to transfer to Marriott, it's one-to-one. If you want to transfer to United, it's one-to-one. But United points are worth a lot more than Hilton points. So you're much better off doing that. Which I think is a thing I didn't hit on. So let's pause. When you earn points, you can either earn them in one place. Hilton points, you use them at Hilton. United points, you use them at United. It's pretty straightforward. When you earn a chase point, there's a lot of things you can do with it. And the same is true with Amex, Capital One, City. This is the transfer thing that everybody talks about, right? Yeah, everyone talks about this, but I'll try to make it super straightforward. You can use those points and you can do things with them like redeem them for gift cards, which is like the notorious, like worst thing to do. Okay. Um, or you can book travel in the portal. Of yeah, the that's, air- that's as far as I've gotten. And I don't think that's the right thing to do, right? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's like the worst thing okay. to do. <laughs> like, if, like redeeming for gift cards or like paying for your Amazon purchase, you're usually getting like one cent for every point you have. Okay. With Chase, if you have the Sapphire Reserve and you book a trip in the portal, you're getting one and a half cents. So you're already doing better than a lot of the alternatives. In some cases, if you took those points and transferred them to United and booked it with United miles, you could get two cents. You could get two and a half. In a perfect, like most optimal, very rare, don't hold yourself to it, you could get 10 cents. Um, How do you know? So like... Like if when you, you tra- see the travel hackers, they're like, well, right now you can transfer it to United and it's 10 cents or like, how, where do they get that info? So they're usually getting it from a redemption. So recently, my wife and I wanted to go to Bora Bora. And we were like, we're going to go in business class if we can do it with points. But we weren't going to do it if we couldn't, right? Tickets in coach were pretty cheap. From San Francisco was like 500 bucks round trip. But in business class, it was about $5,000 round trip. We're like, well, we're not going to do that. But we transferred points and it ended up being 
55,000 points. Transferred points to the airline. Yeah, so we transferred 55,000 points to Air Canada. And we booked the flight on United in business class. So, because Air Canada and United are partners? Exactly. Okay. So there's this website, point.me, and it's not free. Um, but you for under $10, you can do like a week trial. And like, I would say if you're about to plan a trip, that'd be a good time to try it out. And you go in and you say, like, I want to go from here to here. And they're like, actually, if you have chase points, you should transfer them to Air Canada because it's mm. better than transferring them here. And it's available on this flight at this time. They like kind of make it a lot easier for you. So we ended up transferring 55,000 points and we got a ticket that was worth $5,000. If I had booked 55,000 points on Chase's website, I would have gotten one and a half cents or like roughly, let's call it $800. So I got this $5,000 United ticket for the same thing I would have otherwise only gotten an $800 United ticket okay. on. That's where people are talking about it. And this is silly, but how are you transferring them? Is that just like... No, no, no. <laughs> like when you log into Chase or uh-huh. Amex and you say like redeem points, it's like usually says something like transfer to travel partners. And you go in, you put in your United uh, mileage plus number, and then you say five fifty thousand points, go. Okay. And then you go over, log in United, and there are your 50,000 points. But it is not, it's not reversible. So... So you need keep, to, you should always kind of like have an idea in mind of how you're spending it if you're going to do this transfer thing. I would go even farther and say, I would go to United and be like, I want to book this flight. It's 28,000 points, whatever, however many miles it is. Then say, great, it's available. Log on a chase, transfer the points, log out of United, log back in. Now the points are there. Now book it. So it's not even an idea. It's like, have the itinerary exact. you want to book. Okay. And if somebody's a total newbie, do you recommend they start with like, I want to do this trip let me work towards it and work backward from there? Or do you think it's what you said about downgrading there or like looking within the credit card family and kind of staying within the credit card family of what you have or looking for these big signup bonuses? Like if somebody's a a total newbie, but they're just like, I want to start upgrading my travel in this way, where, where should they start? If there's a trip in mind, you could probably go online for any trip and be like, I want to take a trip to Disneyland. What's the best credit card? I want to take a trip to Mm, Europe. What are the best points? And someone's written a blog post about that. And you could start to piece together what's going to make that the most optimal. I love that. That makes it like, like I want to go to Hawaii this year. Exactly. How should I do it? And I will say that like sometimes Hawaii, for example, if you live in the Bay Area and you want to go to Hawaii in April right now, you can get tickets to Hawaii for like 200 bucks, 300 bucks. That's cheap enough that like using points might not be worth it. Now, if you don't have the cash and you have the points, use it. Like, I don't want to get people in this mindset of like, I'm only going to use the points that they're optimal. If your points will let you take a trip that you don't have the money to take and you will enjoy that trip, I promise it's worth it. Even if they could have taken a more optimal version of a trip in the future. But if you don't have a trip in mind, I would say, look at how you regularly spend money and get a card that kind of accommodates that, right? If you spend money across lots of different things, I love the Venture X card, the Capital One Venture X, because it's just two points on everything. So you don't have to be like, I know exactly where I'm spending money. It's super straightforward. They still have a 75,000 point sign up bonus. It's not 100, but it's still pretty good. So you could sign up, start using that. Capital One also, like Chase, lets you transfer points to different partners. So you could just start with that and then just accrue points and then wait until you have a trip in mind and then start to figure it out. Like you could go either way, but I I always say like just start small. Like get one card with a sign up bonus that's like cool right now. Uh I try to post all of the sign up bonuses that are like hot right now at all the hacks.com slash cards 
I try to put like, these are my favorite cards or these are the higher signup bonuses. I try to do that regularly. I do like special episodes yeah. sometimes on like a Friday. Guys, it's, like, it's a hot deal. Yeah, like I want to make sure like right now, Built Rewards just launched a new card. Allthehacks.com slash B-I-L-T. Okay. And it pays you money on rent. Oh. So, or pays you points on rent. That's amazing. So they have no signup bonus. Wow. They have no annual fee. So downside, upside, like you're not going to get a bunch of points just for signing up. But even if your landlord only takes a check, they will mail a check to your landlord for no fees wow. and give you points. Oh, my God. That's phenomenal. Because rent is, for so many of us, the number one expense we all have. Number one yeah, expense. Yeah, that's huge. The card gets three points on dining and two points on travel and one point on everything else. And there's no annual fee. The points transfer to American Airlines, United, and others. The points... You know, you can use the points to transfer to Hyatt. Also, like it's great rewards program. I think it's like if you rent, I think it's a great starter card. I know that was a lot that we yeah. threw out to people. I would say if you have questions, you can shoot me an email. Find me on Instagram. Yeah. Find me on Twitter. Uh, ask me questions. I think or... it was like the best primer, though, that I feel like I've gotten. Like, here's where you can start if you just want to like dabble with upgrading your life in this way, which I really like. Do you want to take a second to pimp out your show a little bit? Yeah. I mean, if we keep talking about we like upgrading stuff, the whole premise of the show is upgrading your life, upgrading your money, travel, everything. So you'll find a bunch of episodes on travel hacks, on points, on miles, on credit cards, but also on relationships and happiness and your career. I just want everyone to have a more optimal life. And I don't want you to have to sacrifice these things, money and happiness to do it. Uh, so each week we try to explore a new topic that will hopefully make your life better. I love that. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And now we're going to go record record me on your podcast. So also, if you want to go listen to All the Hacks and hear me share all of my hacks, you can go over to All the Hacks and hear that. Yeah, and hopefully there'll be some new stuff your listeners haven't heard before. Oh, I have so many hacks that I have not shared. My, my, I'm an interview show. They got to come over to your show to hear me be interviewed. Awesome. Well, we'll see you there. I hope you loved this episode with Chris. I hope you learned a ton about starting a company and budgeting and investing and you have enough information to start travel hacking. If you're interested in that, I'm definitely going to be experimenting with it. So if you are too, hit me up on Instagram. I'm at Liz Moody and we can take this journey together. Also, don't forget that Chris interviewed me on his podcast, All the Hacks. So if you want to hear all of my healthy cooking secrets, all my healthy living hacks, search All the Hacks on your favorite podcast platform and give it a listen. And if you found this podcast through all the hacks or you're new here for any reason, welcome. I am so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you found the podcast. Do not forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform that you are listening on so that you do not miss out on any future episodes. They come out every single Wednesday and we have so many good ones coming up. And if you love this episode or if you've been loving the podcast generally, I would so appreciate a quick rating or review on whatever podcast platform that you listen on. I know everybody says it. I know it gets boring, but it's because it is one of the best ways to help support the podcast that you love. And I promise it's super quick to do. I do it all the time. It costs you nothing but a very, very small amount of time, and it's massively appreciated. Of course, the most appreciated, the most helpful thing for the podcast is to spread the word. So if there is anybody in your life who you think might benefit from the information that we shared in this episode, please shoot them a link, send them the podcast generally, tell them why they need to listen, tell them why you want to talk about it with them. I appreciate it so much. It helps grow our little fam. And I just, I don't know, I love all of you guys. I love everybody in this community from the bottom of my heart. 
All right, that's it from me. I will see you next Wednesday on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. I always say that the most important things that you can do for your health are the ones that have the biggest impact for the smallest amount of effort. Using non-toxic laundry soap is one of my top hacks for that reason. I am not going to buy all organic clothing, but I can make sure what's touching my skin is as healthy for me as possible by washing all of that clothing in the safest possible laundry detergent. That is why I'm so excited to tell you about a brand that I am using, Molly's Suds. This is actually the first non-toxic laundry detergent that I came across so many years ago, and it's a staple that I have continuously come back to time and time again. If you remember, Dr. Sarah Villafranco actually recommended Molly Suds in our episode about skin health because it's an SLS-free brand, which is actually really hard to come by, and it's incredibly important, especially if you deal with dry skin, acne, or any irritation. Molly Suds is free from 1,4-dioxane, formaldehyde, synthetic dyes, fragrances, SLS, like I mentioned, and other harmful chemicals that can cause cancer, disrupt your hormones, or cause allergic reactions. They are also free from optical brighteners, which are particularly interesting because optical brighteners are designed to bind to your clothing and stay there, which means they are always coming into contact with your skin, and they can cause irritations and sensitivities. They're also awful for the environment, yet the vast, vast majority of detergents that you buy at the store contain them. Seriously, Google the detergent that you're using. I bet that it has it in it. But Molly Suds does not, and they're proven to be more effective and more cost-effective on a price-per-load level than leading brands while leaving out everything that can harm you. Molly Suds is cruelty-free, vegan, and Leaping Bunny certified and proudly made in the USA. Make a healthy choice and make the switch like I have to Molly Suds. You can pick up Molly Suds on your next Target run or just for the Liz Moody podcast listeners, order through my exclusive URL to get 20% off all Molly Suds products. To get this fantastic deal, go now to M-O-L-L-Y-S-S-U-D-S dot com slash Liz Moody and use code Liz Moody at checkout. Again, for 20% off, go to mollyssuds.com slash Liz Moody and use code Liz Moody at checkout.